Hello and welcome to the world-famous Driving You Crazy podcast. This is the show where we talk about all things transportation. I am the traffic anchor and the transportation reporter for Denver 7 News, Jason Luber, flying solo today. And in just a minute, I'm going to have a conversation with Tim Jackson. Tim is the president and the CEO of the Colorado Automobile Dealers Association. And Tim wrote an opinion piece saying that cars are literally getting us through this pandemic. There were a ton of interesting points he made in this piece, and you can read the piece if you like. There is a link to the article in the description of the podcast. You can get it right there. And we're going to talk all about it, as well as how car dealers are doing, and of course, if the annual auto show is still on for this year. And I'll hook up with Tim coming up in just a bit. But first, did you see that the mask mandate on flights is getting pretty serious? Uh, Did you hear about the Delta flight? Going from Detroit to Atlanta, they had to actually turn around after a couple of customers refused to wear face masks. The plane landed. Those people were escorted off the flight. There was another flight in Europe, and I can't remember the airline. I think it was KLM Airlines. And there was actually a fist fight on the airplane because people weren't wearing their masks. So it's getting pretty serious out there, folks. I telling you the airlines are not messing around and i think public uh persuasion is not messing around either the public is really getting into the whole you better wear your mask on the airplane deal also from delta if you didn't see they have a new policy for people who claim they cannot wear a mask due to health concerns so if you make a false claim or any passenger makes a false claim And you get caught, however, I I don't know how they're going to catch you, but you are or could be banned from all future Delta flights. So it's getting pretty serious out there if you're going to be messing around with the mask on the airplane. I also mentioned last week about a cruise from Germany that started operating again, and they were doing just fine without the COVID. Well, now there's a cruise out of Norway that has had a bunch of crew members all get the COVID. And so there you go, it's cruising. <laughs> it was fun while it lasted. It's over now because that cruise line that got all the COVID, I think they're owned by, or one of the uh, little uh, cruise lines that's owned by Carnival. Carnival owns a bunch of cruise lines, uh, not just Carnival cruises, but they have a bunch of subsidiary cruise lines. And so that means they're probably going to delay cruising for, well, probably until they have a vaccine or to a later date. I don't I don't know. I, I, I don't know if we're going to see cruising until maybe even next year, which is um, a little sad because they were trying, they tested, and they failed. That was the problem. They, they tested, and they failed. And speaking of Germany, I was reading something from uh, about Germany and how their traffic levels are actually coming back to near pre-pandemic levels, even though they're having a bit of a surge of COVID in Germany. They are getting their traffic and their transportation network back up to what it was uh, just before the pandemic started. So some places uh, around the United States are, are getting close to that level, not not right at it. But uh, here in uh, Denver, where I am, we're still below, at least in the morning and afternoon commutes, and still higher than we were in the middays. Uh, which is still a little surprising. And there are a lot of cities like that in the United States, still with the higher than pre-COVID levels in the midday. 
and not as many people driving around for the uh, morning and afternoon commutes. I think that's because so many people are still working from home. And you're going to have that. I, I just found out officially yesterday that we are going to be broadcasting from home for at least till the end of the year, uh, maybe even to early next year. So we'll see how that goes. The, the uh, president of the company wanted to let everybody know, uh, here's your plans for the rest of the year. Plan to stay home and do what you've been doing. So there it is. And I think we're going to see Traffic patterns reflect that. And usually traffic patterns change when school starts up. And schools are supposed to start up here. Some areas, they've already had some schools start up, and then they've closed them because of COVID. And we'll see how that also plays out because there's going to be so many schools. Our school uh, is going to be a hybrid system where they're supposed to have uh, kids there just a couple days a week. And it will change the way we um, drive around and how traffic patterns are. So there's only time will tell how that happens. Uh, New Hampshire became the first state in the nation to open up its public highways to flying cars. First, for you worried New Hampshire motorists, take note, the cars won't be flying above your lane. Instead, the new law makes it possible for these flying cars to drive on public roads, taking the pilot from the airport, after they've already flown their flying car, to their final destination, to their house, and vice versa. Operators are required to have both a driver's license and also a pilot's license so you can do both tasks. The CEO of Samson Sky, one of the three companies that are manufacturing flying cars, said this is something the public has been yearning for for decades. The new law in New Hampshire establishes the procedures through uh, what roadable aircraft can be registered and then inspected, and these flying cars are actually prohibited from landing or taking off on public roads, which kind of defeats the purpose, doesn't it? Because if you're in traffic and you have a flying car, don't you want to just put the wings down and take off and fly over all that stuff, right? Obviously, that would be a little bit dangerous, so that's why they don't do it. Okay, to the mailbag. Doug from Egerton, Wisconsin writes, what's driving you crazy? This is what Doug says. Well, you know, the COVID mostly, but that huge trike video, I was wondering who sung the song that goes with video. Thought it was Moonshine Bandits. It always gets me going when I hear a song and I don't know who it is and I really like it. So if you could let me know, it would be cool. Thanks, Doug. <laughs> well, Doug, thanks for writing in from Egerton, Wisconsin. Now, the song that is featured on this video... Uh, the video is actually a, it's on my Facebook page, my Jason Luber Traffic Guy Facebook page. And it's basically this huge trike motorcycle. You've seen those trike motorcycles that have the uh, two wheels in the back, the one in the front. Usually there's two seats there, like a motorcycle, but it's a trike. Well, this one isn't just like a motorcycle size. This is semi-truck sized with, with an engine that looks like it could haul a 747 down a runway to take off speed, it is that big of an engine, and there's one guy sitting up on this huge trike, uh, truck thing, uh, and riding. And the video that I uh, that I got it is featured featuring a song on it, and it's by an artist called Big Smo. The name of the song is called Workin', and uh, featuring Alexander King. So, Doug, the artist is called Big Smo. The name of the song is called Workin'. Featuring Alexander King. I think you uh, 
that's the song you're looking for. There were quite a few favorable comments on that video. It's already been seen, uh, I don't know, five or six million times already in about a week, which is a little bit crazy. Uh, again, my, my Facebook page is Jason Luber Traffic Guy, J-A-Y-S-O-N. Uh, Luber Traffic Guy. It's also the link is on the description of the podcast if you want to uh, see that video or any other videos that I have posted on there. All right, so uh, we are hooking up with uh, Tim now. How important are our cars during this pandemic? According to Tim Jackson, the president and CEO of the Colorado Automobile Dealers Association, our cars are literally getting us through this COVID-19 crisis. Tim wrote an opinion piece in Colorado Politics saying that our cars are more important now than ever. You can read the piece with the link that is in the description of the podcast. Headquartered in Denver, the Colorado Automobile Dealers Association represents 260 new car and truck dealers throughout the state, advocates for issues important to the industry, including the state's goal of reducing vehicle emissions. Tim Jackson is the president and CEO of the CADA and joins me now here to on the Driving Your Crazy podcast to talk all things transportation, cars, and other issues. Tim, thanks again for carving out some time to be here on the show. You know, thanks for the opportunity, Jason. And, and uh, yeah, we're finding new uses for our cars that we that I would have never dreamed possible. Now we have, you know, we have drive-by weddings, drive-by graduations, birthday celebrations, uh, healthcare worker appreciations. Here's a good one I think you'll uh, get a chuckle out of. I just heard last week it was a drive-by parade. Instead of everybody standing on the street in the parade driving by the audience, the audience is in their cars, and they drive by a static parade. I, I thought it was brilliant. And then, of course, we've always had drive-in theaters, and, and by the way, there are only seven of those left in Colorado, but they're busier now than they've ever been. In fact, they're selling tickets in advance and selling out. And now we even have some pop-up drive-in theaters, and some of the drive-in theaters are serving now as drive-in concerts. Who would have thought possible? And Garth Brooks did a you may have seen a nationwide concert where he was feeding from one location into drive-in theaters all across the country. So uh, as the New York Times said, our cars are like safe cocoons. They're both inside and outside. And when I read that, I, I had to think about it a minute. Well, they're outside the house, but you're inside the cars, so you're really safe. So they really are inside and outside of, when you think about it. And now at a time when people are afraid, or and rightfully so, to uh, share a ride with Uber and Lyft or to get on a public transit system, um, ridership in public transit, as you may know, is way, way down. It uh, went down as much as 95% in, New, in the, the MTA system in New York. And here in the RTD was down, I believe, over 70% at its depth. So, um, those places are not safe, obviously, and people are vacating from those, and um, they're going into cars. So it's a it's a it's a great storyline. Yeah, when you mentioned all those those things we're doing in our cars, I, I went we went to drive up church when that was first an option uh, when they had to close down the church buildings and uh, those parades that you're talking about. We had a parade for graduation, fifth grade graduation for my kids, where we, it was just a parade of cars just driving around Daniel's Park so we could all just wave to each other uh, as we're driving by each other on uh, on the street. So at least the fifth graders had a chance to have some kind of uh, exit parade, if you will. But the statement when you said in your piece that our cars are getting us through COVID, literally, the statement 
to me, it sounded a bit counterintuitive because even though we can do all these things in our cars, as you just mentioned, we are driving so much less than before the lockdown. Well, and that's a that's a good point. I mean, uh, we are uh, putting you. You're right uh, because we're not going anywhere, right? <laughs> I mean, um, we're not going to work, but we're going to the uh, to the fifth grade graduation. So we're using our cars in a different way, even if not as much. Um, but let me. Um, I I think there are some counters to this, and from a standpoint of um, overall use of the cars and some things we haven't got into. Um, in Colorado here, and of course, especially on the Front Range, everybody likes to go to the mountains. And you've probably seen and heard this, Jason, but the mountain, um, the trailheads where people go and hike, there's been so many people coming in that the cars have filled the parking lots and are dr- down the lane and out into into the road that leads leads to the trailhead. So we're we're maybe not driving them to work. But we're definitely driving them, and we're finding new places to go. I love my car. I mean, I actually miss driving into work every day. It's, it's, it's. I guess it's my little respite, my my little personal time that I had for twenty five or thirty minutes to drive between home and work, and just listen to the radio and let your mind wander. And and I, I think there's a lot of people like me who are now having to work from home. Actually, I think jumping in their car to maybe get a little bit of car time so they can enjoy that ride once again because they're missing out on it. Yeah, and um, uh, and again, the the um, the COVID pandemic has um, has has changed things, and obviously, and in fact, I think you're getting a new neighbor because one of my friends is moving from Denver to Castle Pines. Uh, they figured out through the pandemic that, uh, and through the uh, shutdowns and stay-at-home orders that they really didn't have to have an office in downtown Denver. So they're going to vacate their Denver office and move to Castle Pines. Uh, a lot of other people, I think, are moving out of cities for, for good reason now. But, um, but that doesn't mean they're not going to be putting more miles on their cars or putting different miles on their cars because now they'll be working from home and they'll um, – be running errands from there. Um, the other thing, and this was um, surprising to me, all of this has been, by the way, Jason, um, but um, camper sales, RV sales are way, way up. And uh, we also represent RV dealers besides representing new car dealers. And I had RV dealers when they, when the state closed our showrooms, one of our RV dealers said, I've got 26 campers to deliver on Saturday, how am I going to do that? And that was on a Tuesday, and she said, you know, we'll probably actually be delivering more than 26. This was our busy season anyway, but because of COVID pandemic, uh, we're selling more campers than ever. And and I hadn't thought of it, but another RV dealer told me from up in Longmont that um, a doctor called and said, I need to buy an RV, I need a, a, a motorhome basically for my mother-in-law because we're going to quarantine her, but this is going to be her safe place. I can put her in an RV, and it's got a bathroom, it's got a shower, it's got a bedroom, it's got a kitchen, and if she needs to go somewhere, she can still drive it and take it somewhere. And I thought it was brilliant. That was coming from a medical doctor trying to save his mother, 
in a safe quarantine place. That is brilliant. That is that's a really good idea, and I didn't even think about that for maybe even nursing home patients who, because we're separated, right? There's a lot of uh, couples right. who have been separated because they aren't allowed to go into the nursing homes, and so maybe that's a way to get the couples back together and quarantine together. Maybe yeah, I guess they don't have the uh, medical uh, 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 benefits right there with them, but at least they could be together in one vehicle. Yeah. And it's 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 really um, uh, caused a rush in the RV business, both at the dealer level and the manufacturer level. They can't right now; they're not building them fast enough. Yeah, and so, I saw um, I saw I also saw that we we because my wife and I we tried to rent an RV uh, for a road trip this summer, and we couldn't find one even to rent. So they they're not even just. Uh, selling like hotcakes. They're also being rented like hotcakes. We went up to Salida and saw RVs and campers everywhere. It looks like that's the way people want to at least vacation right now during the pandemic. Yeah, and if you want a campsite, and just like you said there, um, I was checking yesterday for some weekends in September, um, actually called Palisade, Colorado, out by Grand Junction, um, and uh, they've got a new campground out there. And the first opening they have is the last weekend in October. <laughs> I mean, now we're in early August, so it's three months away, and you can't even get a per, uh, camping site for three months up there. So uh, if you're going camping and want to use a camper in a campground or an RV park, plan ahead. So in your piece that's in the uh, Colorado politics, by the way, I'm talking to Tim Jackson, president and CEO of the Colorado Automobile Dealers Association, where you have a piece in the Colorado politics saying that cars are more important now than ever. I wanted to talk a bit about how some people are wanting to use this downtime in traffic volume to change cities permanently. Researchers at KMPG conducted a study recently that concluded that traffic volumes probably aren't going to climb much higher than 90% of pre-pandemic levels, at least initially. Streets Blog USA they wrote an opinion piece. It looks like a news story, but it's more of an opinion piece, as most of their news stories are, air quotes there, using that information saying we could make use of the time-tested and even radical strategies to make car travel the mode of last resort in most cities. What we can't afford to do is nothing, or else even that measly 10% drop in car travel could vanish in a heartbeat. What do you say about the people that want to have more of these permanent restrictions on cars? You know, those are good examples, and I am familiar with the street blog um, website that you cited, and because they are, uh, there's one for Denver, and there's one for a lot of other major cities. Um, well, Jason, even before the pandemic, so this is not a new thing that just started with the pandemic, but there were people that are have created really a war on cars. Uh, there is a War on Cars blog out of um, uh, New York City, of all places, Manhattan. And Manhattan's a little bit different. I think it would be difficult to own and drive a car if you lived in downtown Manhattan. But the War on Cars is based in Manhattan. Ironically, Doug Gordon, one of the founders of the War on Cars, actually just bought a car because of the pandemic. So it's, it's really a great story. He was quoted on... on uh, on uh, a national radio broadcast, he said, yeah, I had to break down and get a car because of the pandemic. Yeah, and by the way, uh, let me just give you a sidebar. Sure. We've helped create a local 
coalition called the Freedom to Drive Coalition that is set up really to help keep car lanes and, and access to uh, uh, vehicle choice. Um, and um, um, they're, they're operating local. We kept Colorado and Denver out of the name because it could, it could go national. I don't know if it will. But think of it as the AAA of, uh, of just keeping uh, uh, cars um, with lanes to drive in and not having um, uh, the bicycles and the bus rapid transit take away all the lanes. Well, at least you're uh, counter uh, to the bike and the pedestrian zealots that are out there that are trying to do away with cars. At least somebody's trying to uh, advocate for cars. Yeah, there has to be somebody on the other side of that um, on the other side of that balance. I think balance of power. So, but here in Denver, let's bring it back home a little bit. And since you commute, and you and I are not too far apart from your station, uh, well, outside the pandemic, you commute. <laughs> right. But. Um, um, but let's say South Broadway in Denver. A lot of people, uh, and your listeners probably know, and I know your viewers on the station know, um, City of Denver has been working to make it difficult for people to drive South Broadway. Now, South Broadway, for anybody that's not aware, it was a five-lane corridor, main uh, thoroughfare, from downtown Denver to I-25 and one-way southbound with Lincoln Avenue being the northbound corridor that offset it. So uh, let's say five years ago, there were five lanes southbound. Then the city of Denver dedicated the right-hand lane for bus rapid transit, and then later uh, converted that 24-7-365. The only way you're going to be in that lane with a car is if you're making a right-hand turn and then just for a short distance. And then they dedicated the left-hand lane for bicycles. And let me make a full and uh, very clear disclosure. I'm a pretty avid cyclist. I cycle about three to 5,000 miles a year. What I'm about to say isn't against cycles or cycling or cyclists at all because I love cycling and I would never want to give that up, just like I don't want to give up driving a car. But South Broadway is not my preferred location for commuting on a bike. And, oh, by the way, nobody else is either. We actually did a traffic study that you'll be interested in, Jason, on South Broadway. We went down on the last day of before um, daylight savings time ended, uh, took rush hour traffic on a Friday afternoon, figured that's going to be the busiest time through that corridor. This was after the bike lane and the bus lane had been extracted from the car lanes. And these numbers are, are just amazing numbers. 6,300 and some people commuted through that corridor. 89% during that two-hour period, by the way, 89% of them, a vast majority, almost nine out of every 10 commuters were compressed then to the middle lanes because they were passengers in cars. We also counted the passengers in buses, and they made up, um, actually did a little better than, than I thought, but that was pre-COVID, at 11%. It was about 785 people in buses compared to 6,300 in cars. But there was a bike lane. There were four of us counting. We all had a second counter for the bikes because we knew there wouldn't be many and there wasn't even reason to have a dedicated counter. So all four of us that were counting buses and cars uh, counted the bikes. There were 11 commuters on cyclists in that two-hour period. That doesn't even make up 1%. In fact, it's two-tenths of 1%, and yet we're dedicating a, line, a lane on South Broadway. And that's not even the punchline. Jason, here it gets better. Only five of the 11 cyclists 
took their lane in the bicycle lane. An equal number took their bicycle and took it down the middle of the bus lane <laughs> on the right side. Right. And, and so, in other words, the old adage doesn't always apply, the field of dreams mentality. If you build it, they will come. Right. Well, we've built a, a bike lane, and they haven't come. In fact, we've built it, and they're not even using it when they're driving the corridor riding the quarter in their bike. And that doesn't count. And I said, there were 11, so five in the bus lanes, five in the bike lanes, and there was one other cyclist. Well, that guy took his lane right out of the middle of the car lanes. He was, I think, on a death wish and, and maybe a wing and a prayer. No lights, no helmet, no, no safety equipment, no nothing, and taking his bike lane out of the middle of the car lanes. I guess he survived it. I didn't follow him all the way down the corridor, but it was kind of crazy. But... The point is that the city of so so I let's say the question arises why take a bike lane out of a very busy thoroughfare that you're compressing traffic well they actually want to compress traffic because they want to get people as you said earlier get them out of cars and cars are the preferred way of traveling that corridor and uh uh, city of Denver is on a mission to make it harder to drive cars. And it's not just the city of Denver. It's really about any city around the country that's doing this exact same thing. And and like you said, uh, and I'm not against bikes either. I, I think there is room for bikes and pedestrians and for single occupancy cars as well. But for the city to uh, arbitrarily say, we're going to eliminate lanes, so we are just going to make traffic as bad as it can be for single occupancy vehicles or, or just regular cars, then they are trying to force people to change their behavior because they're they're hoping the traffic is going to get so bad, we're talking pre-pandemic levels, that they are going to be forced to change their behavior and get on a bus or get on a bike, which you don't want to do in the middle of February. Uh, and they're just trying to force you to get onto public transportation, which not everybody, even pre-pandemic, post-pandemic, any pandemic, people don't want to get on a bus. It's not their favorite form of transportation or even on a train, which is a little bit more palatable for some people. They just... I don't want to do it. I, I want to ride in my own car, even if it's going to take me a little bit longer. Absolutely. And that's the way most Americans are. And that's the way, um, you know, that's the way the uh, the roads have been built. The roads have been built through the gas tax. And um, so the, the cars pay for the roads. And ironically now, and, um, anybody that studies this uh, recognizes it, um, the cars pay for the bike lanes too, because the bike lanes are coming out of the out of the roads that the cars built and the cars are paying for the uh, bus lanes. And then in a way, we're also paying as drivers, we're also paying for the trains because we're paying uh, sales tax on those cars when we buy them that goes over to the RTD to buy the uh, bus rapid transit and the trains. Is it frustrating to you, or do you hear from the pedestrian or the bike zealots, even being a biker yourself, a bike rider yourself, about how they would rather see all cars disappear from the roadways and reclaim all lanes of traffic for pedestrians and uh, parks and for uh, bikes and basically shut down all urban areas so they can just uh, keep it car free? You know, it it is frustrating. And um, yet, if, if we can all... Um, 
um, look at the issue rationally, and most of us are capable of doing that if we take our guard down and, and have a casual conversation. Again, none of my, I have a lot of bicycling friends since I do a lot of miles a, a year and, and, and ride with a lot of cycle, other cyclists. None, I mean, when I ask them, do you want to ride the, um, do you ever ride that South Broadway route? And they said, no, I don't even know why they have it. Because they would rather see um, bike lanes um, offered up in places that are more safe and less car centric. You know, they, they, um, I personally like riding the Cherry Creek Trail, the Platte River Trail, and, um, and other dedicated bike corridors like that. And then there are a lot of places in Denver that uh, the streets are wide enough, whether they have bike lanes or not. Uh, I don't feel unsafe at all on Denver streets. And that's the way most of my cyclist buddies are, I think. And, um, but as car drivers um, that are, um, some of us have to commute and some of us need to commute, um, we don't want that commute being stretched out more than it has to be uh, for something that's needless, let's say bike lanes on South Broadway. I'm speaking with Tim Jackson, the president and CEO of the Colorado Automobile Dealers Association. You were telling me about some data that the Colorado Automobile Dealers Association has that has never been reported or published, and that goes against the city's efforts to try to get these cars off the road. Is, is, is that what you're talking about, some of the traffic counts that are on South Broadway or something else? Yes, uh, Jason, we did, a, we did public opinion polling in late February and early March, and uh, it was ahead of our planned Denver Auto Show, which later was canceled because of the COVID crisis. And uh, then because of the shutdown, we ended up not um, going to media with these reports. So you're really hearing a lot of this first. Uh, here's some key findings. And, and there were 300 Denver voters surveyed by Magellan, David Flattery's uh, Magellan polling company. It's called Magellan Strategies. And then 500 statewide um, in the statewide and Denver surveys, 88 and 87% respectively, so that's 88% statewide and 87% in Denver, uh, own cars and uh, vehicle ownership or leasing. So it's it's uh, very predominant. Um, and in fact, respondents with a household income of 30000 or less have a lower ownership rate than uh, statewide and city ownership averages, but is still significant at 68%. So even people that that basically are probably minimum wage or low income earners, uh, over two out of every three, two thirds still have a car. So it probably is not a shiny new car, but it's a car nonetheless. And I'll bet they still depend on it to get to work. 55% of Denver respondents and 70% of statewide respondents oppose traffic congestion, what I would call traffic congestion by design. That's a reduction policy that would restrict the use of personal vehicles by eliminating parking spots on streets, residential buildings, and hotels. And speaking specifically of Denver, they allowed a downtown Denver hotel to be built with 500 guest rooms and zero parking spots. Another place uh, about 16th and Humboldt, um, 240-unit apartment complex, micro-apartments, was, two, like I say, 240 units and zero parking spots. Among the statewide respondents, 65% in the past have decided not to drive a vehicle in downtown Denver because of congestion. So that tells us that 
the congestion by design is going to hurt downtown Denver businesses. And Denver voters are more likely to own a battery electric vehicle. That, um, we, we have some EV questions, but at 14%, where it's just 6% of statewide. Voter intent, uh, let's see, um, let me go on down to um, back on the commuters. Among statewide respondents, 54% said they commute to work on a daily basis. Um, and 59% of Denver respondents, so more of in Denver actually commute than statewide. The percentage of daily commuters is much higher among voters ages 18 to 44, 69%. And in Denver, that's 78%, basically four out of every five commute. Among the respondents that commute to work daily, driving their personal vehicle, 80%, statewide and 68% in Denver is the overwhelming choice. So it's four-fifths of the statewide commuters want to drive their car, and uh, over two-thirds of Denver commuters want to drive their car. Um, let's go to the 12% uh, statewide of daily commuters or 20% of, um, of Denver commuters. 12 statewide and 20% Denver rely on public transit. Now, this is where the numbers are single digit here, but I'll read through this. Riding a bicycle is the choice of only 2% statewide and 3% in Denver. So, and those numbers are not much different. I, I don't know if that surprises you, Jason. It surprises me. The numbers statewide Colorado and the 500 surveyed versus in the city of Denver are pretty much um, um, the same. And then walking to work was actually more popular among statewide at 3% versus 2, and Denver commuters by 4% versus 3. So more people walk to work than ride a bicycle to work, but together they're, they're still single digits. I'm speaking with Tim Jackson, the president and CEO of the Colorado Automobile Dealers Association. I think what you're, the heart of what you're getting at there, Tim, is it seems like we're going to be creating a urban zone right in a a downtown core let's say denver downtown you're going to have uh let's say 20 square blocks of of basically no traffic where you're having businesses and you're having folks and 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 apartment buildings or condo buildings that are all catering to people who don't own a vehicle who are just going to walk maybe grab the bus or light rail and only be in that urban zone and not really go outside of it because they won't have a vehicle unless they're going to take a ride share and then you're going to have that versus a suburban zone outside of that urban core where people are free to drive around and uh, get around like they normally do here out in the uh, hitherlands in the suburbs where I can drive over to uh, Sam's or I can drive over to the grocery store and I don't have to walk with five or six or ten bags of, of groceries. It almost seems like we're, we're, we're creating two different areas and two different cities based on transportation needs. Uh, I think you're exactly right. I hear what you're saying and I think you're, um, you're spot on at what their intent is. But the, and when I say there, it's public, it's uh, civic leaders that are um, city council in this case for city of Denver, who is uh, restricting the lanes, for example, on South Broadway, and allowing uh, massive construction projects without parking, and they with the stated goal of making it harder uh, for people to drive, or what I like to call congestion by design. But um, 
at some point, and what they ha- what they run up against is public opinion, and obviously, based on this polling, it's um, public opinion is against uh, these efforts by about a um, three to two margin, so about fifty five percent to about thirty three percent. But you know, Tim, that a lot of politicians, most politicians, don't really care once they're elected about public opinion until the next election. Well, that is true. <laughs> That is a political dynamic, and we operate in a political world, so I do understand that. Yeah, because I could see that parking is actually, and I made this point at many different shows with different guests, that I think parking is the is going to be their eventual way to curb traffic flow into an urban core. Because if parking cost me $100 a day, I am much less likely to drive into that area. Or if there's no parking available or parking is costing me uh, so much money that it's just not worth it for me to drive my car, I won't drive that far. I will. When I used to live in downtown Denver when I was uh, working at KOA Radio forever ago, I would I had a bike and and I would or I had a little one of those little motorized scooter things and I would drive that thing around downtown because if I was going to a Rockies game it was too expensive to drive my car over there or if I was later on in life when I moved outside of downtown I would drive to one of these uh parking lots and then you know take my scooter or take my bike and and drive it in you know the 10 or 12 blocks over to Coors Field and watch a Rockies game I I do see in the future parking becoming a commodity outside of the urban core where you could start collect charging people for a, a lower fee to, to drive to that point and then they they can get into the urban core however they else they want uh, no that's an excellent point and let me hit on something that will um, maybe some of your listeners are thinking um, into the future or far into the future it may not be as far as what um, some might expect, but the autonomous cars, for example. And in talking, when I talk to city leaders, they've had they've had briefings on autonomous cars. I stay pretty adept on a, autonomy and, and where that movement is going. And um, by the way, um, all of our cars have some degree of autonomous uh, technology now because cruise control is a form of autonomous technology. Um, and, and our cars become more autonomous every year. We have crash avoidance warnings. We have... Um, 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 the lane safe warnings to keep you between the, the lanes where you're supposed to be driving. And eventually, I have no doubt that cars will become autonomous. But as they become autonomous and as they become electrified, uh, and there is a movement towards electrification, we're, we're all for that, and we sell electric cars. But um, they will get to be less expensive to operate. But when the parking spot is... Um, Forty, fifty, sixty dollars, and the car is very inexpensive to drive. The autonomous car's parking becomes the street, and it just stays in motion. And you can imagine what uh, if you think of Ubers and Lyfts today. Think of an Uber, an autonomous Uber, or autonomous Lyft. They will just be in a constant state of circulation, whether they have passengers in their cars or not. And so when they're running empty, the old REO song, Run Empty Only, when they're running empty, um, they will just be running empty and filling one of those other three lanes on South Broadway. Um, and, so, and I'll also tie into something you said earlier on, on, um, on maybe some people not needing to go back to Denver um, or may work from home. I, uh, my friend who is uh, 
uh, moving to Castle Pines, is uh, going to be working uh, as a home office. And he said, hey, our parking structure in downtown Denver is only about 10% full. Well, those will ebb and flow, of course, but as that parking becomes less expensive because of people working from home, some of those will be filled with um, with these autonomous cars when they're in a holding pattern. So there will be some uh, give and take to that. There was an investment company looked at looking at property in the Denver metro area to build a massive, huge um, parking structure, not necessarily right in the high-rise area, but not too far away, maybe something close to Mile High Stadium or something like that. And their idea was that the autonomous cars would need a place to park, and they were just getting ready. But I've got another friend who uh, represents a company that has parking structures in Denver, and they're trying to find other uses for those parking spots when they're sitting idle, because um, right now, because of the pandemic, a lot of them are empty. I'm speaking with Tim Jackson, President and CEO of the Colorado Automobile Dealers Association. Speaking of the dealers, how are the new and used car dealers doing since the pandemic? Yeah, we represent the new car dealers, and actually they're doing um, very well right now. Our um, When the showrooms were closed during the stay-at-home orders, I figured we'd see a 40 or 50% drop in sales because some people wouldn't want to have the car delivered at home or do everything over the uh, Internet. But, uh, in fact, it's only, uh, for the first half of the year, 17%. But the factories were closed down at the same time our showrooms were closed down, so there wasn't any vehicle production during that time. And one of our biggest challenges today, and when I say our challenges, the dealers we represent, but I'd also say the consumers that we serve, is that there is very little inventory right now. So 82% of what Coloradoans buy are in the category of light-duty trucks. Those are pickups, vans, and SUVs. And um, and those are in such short supply that I have dealers telling me that they are at only about 10% of inventory of what they normally would be, not because that's where they want to be, but that's all the vehicles that they can get. And the demand is, is greater than the supply, the old supply and demand theories. And uh, <laughs> I've had people say, the truck comes in delivering a load of new cars, and people are buying cars right off the truck. And, it's a unique scenario. Yeah, and I did read just recently that people are holding on to their cars longer than ever before. I think because the cars are made better, they have been in the last five to ten years. They've been made to last longer just by giving it the routine maintenance. Your car's going to last longer. And I think people are nervous about what's going to happen in the next five years. Just think about where you were five years ago. And if this question was posed to you, I, I think everybody failed the, uh, the the test. If somebody says five years ago, where do you think you're going to be five years from now? I think everybody's answer failed the test of what has happened in the last six oh, months. Sure. You know, So I, I do think people are nervous about what's going to happen over the next uh, two or five or ten years, and so they are holding under their cars um, a little bit longer. You know, and that's a, that's an excellent point uh, you bring up, Jason. Uh, the uh, new new data shows that the um, average age of the fleet, and when we talk the fleet, that's all the cars on the road. Um, the average age of the cars today is the oldest on record. The one thing that um, uh, that we all instinctively know, and that we um, uh, can assume will continue, and that is that new cars get better every year, year in and year out. So a car that was built 30 years ago, 
wasn't expected to be driven more than about 100,000 miles, and then it'd be time to retire it. And now new cars will drive three or 400,000 miles with very little maintenance or service, and um, so they last so much longer. And um, um, I'm often asked in community presentations, why do people keep their cars so long? And it's a three-word answer, because they can. Uh, you know, 30 years ago, they couldn't necessarily because they were afraid to keep a car more than 50 or 60,000 miles because that's when the maintenance started. Uh, maintenance bills would start adding up. But now, 50 or 60,000 miles on any new car today is barely broken. You were mentioning that the factories had shut down, just like every other business was shut down for a time. Did that shutdown affect the development of new cars and obviously getting new cars to the lots? That's the problem. But do you, did it affect the development and the technology stream of new cars and where we're going to be in the next two or three or five years? Well, it has uh, probably on all manufacturers that had to close down, which is virtually almost all. Um, it has uh, slowed or delayed their pace or their schedule, anticipated uh, and scheduled release of a new car uh, or the next model or the next technology. So, um, And there's a combination of reasons for that, and I'll, I'll be brief in uh, describing them. But one is they were geared up for the X number of cars to be built with this model year and this equipment, and then when they were six to eight weeks behind in the spring, now they're having to rush to get all that equipment on, say, to a 2020 model so they can gear up for the 2021s, which are supposed to go into production um, about this time. So that's one one thing. And then um, we talked about electrification. So factories that are uh, saying, well, we're going to start putting it uh, electric cars through this uh, through this assembly line at this point in time. Um, if they were saying that in January, that, that point in time has probably been delayed more than the uh, shutdown order stay, um, you know, uh, caused a delay. So, um, so yes, it will, it will cause a lot of, uh, let's just say a slowing of the pace of uh, new vehicle technology, getting that technology to the cars and thus getting the technology to the street. And is this affecting foreign car makers more than domestic or is it about the same? Because everybody, the United States had different shutdown requirements than did Europe and did Japan and Korea. So we're seeing different uh, shutdown levels maybe affecting different car makers differently. You know, um, also um, a good and insightful question there. The, um, we're really an international industry in, in every way uh, imaginable. And when I say that, um, there are more Toyotas built in the U.S. than uh, some of the domestic manufacturers build of their own cars in the U.S. Um, and uh, Toyota Camry has more American-made parts than some of the, um, than say, a Ford F-150, although the Ford F-150 is not far behind. So, um, we're such an international uh, industry, but most of the manufacturing, let, let's say most of the cars that are sold in the U.S. are actually built in the U.S., even if it's not by a U.S.-based automaker. So whether they're a Toyota, a Honda, a Subaru, a Mazda, a BMW, a Mercedes, a Porsche, or a VW, uh, or a Hyundai or a Kia, 
Um, there's a whole list of international nameplates, as you know, and um, it's more than likely that that any of those brands, if a customer is buying a new one of those today, that that car was built in the U.S. Hmm. or at least assembled in the U.S. Right. A uh, couple of uh, last questions as the, with the time that we have left. Do you see traffic? We've seen traffic starting to come back. If pre you know from from the pre pandemic levels it was obviously a huge drop off and it is coming back it's not not close but it is starting to come back it has come back actually in germany where they're just about 95% of the way there do you see traffic coming back to pre shutdown levels or staying lower or maybe climbing higher in the years to come well if it's in the years to come i'll answer the last question first and i'll say definitely climbing higher and um but as far as the post-pandemic, um, I think it, it will get back to the pre-pandemic levels uh, fairly quickly. I'm glad to hear the number on Germany. I had I had not heard that until you um, mentioned it. But um, and I think we are not at 95%. I don't know what percentage you maybe know what we are versus um, where we were before the pandemic. However, it's definitely it's de- definitely coming back. And uh, uh, what will let's say adjust that or let's say modify where that uh, number is, is how many people uh, then have figured out that, hey, they can stay at home uh, and work. They figured that out through the pandemic, so now they're going to stay at home longer. We've talked about that a little bit. But just because they're working at home doesn't mean they're not going to get out of their car and fill the streets because we're Americans and we want to go places. That's right. I was trying to bring up the uh, data real fast here from Traffic Karma. I talked to uh, some folks from Traffic Karma who are tracking the uh, traffic that is coming back. And right now we're still, uh, as we do increase traffic in the morning and afternoons, it's still not quite to what we were pre-pandemic. But still, I'm seeing more traffic between 9 and 3 in the late morning and early afternoon than we had in the pre-pandemic. So that is an interesting change in the way we have been seeing traffic patterns flow. You mentioned early on about the auto show, and what, it's one of my favorite things to do is to go to the auto show. Are we going to see an auto show again, or are we going to have to do it in a socially distant and masked manner? Uh, yes, yes, and yes. Um, we will see them again. Um and it will probably, depending on where we're at there, the country and the world is at on a vaccine, probably uh, see it in a new um, uh, social distance mask um, um, protocols. Um, the Denver Auto Show is um, is scheduled. It's on the calendar for uh, mid, uh, mid to late March in 2021. And we are contracted with the convention center. Just a, a, a couple of quick factoids that I know you'll be interested in personally, a lot of your Listeners probably will be too. The Denver Auto Show actually is the third oldest auto show in the country. It, uh, the only uh, those that predated are only New York City, which started in 1900, and Chicago in 1901. Denver's Auto Show dates all the way back to 1902, which is pretty miraculous when you think about it. Because the Detroit Show, which is obviously a bigger show now, and, and Detroit is Motor City, right? Right. So they didn't start their show until 1907. And the first auto show was in a building, the first Denver auto show in 1902 was in a building that still stands today, and it's the Fillmore Auditorium. At that time, it was called the Monarch Auditorium over on East Colfax and Clarkson. And um, and in that first show in 1902, there were 
27 cars. Now, when you put that in perspective, Jason, we have 27, more than 27 cars in just the Toyota display or just the General <laughs> Motors display or just the Ford display. But 27 cars, half of them were electric and half of them were steam, of all things. Uh, people don't realize it, but some of those cars were manufactured right here in Colorado because it was before centralization. There were originally about 3,000 automakers before consolidation uh, of the industry. Uh, several of those were in Colorado. There was an electric car company based in Longmont, and there was a steam car company based in Estes Park. And uh, and people don't think about it, but it was the Stanley Steamer. Mm. Everybody knows the Stanley Steamer today. The Stanley Steamer, the tar uh, carpet, the carpet cleaner. cleaner. Yeah. But now, I mean, at that time, the first uh, Stanley Steamer was a steam car. And um, so we, we're kind of coming full circle on the electrics. We had electrics to start with, and then Henry Ford decided to go with an internal combustion engine in the Model T, and the whole industry gravitated that way and has been that way ever since. Now we're gravitating back to electric. And um, so it's really interesting. Denver's got a rich history in cars, car culture, in the Denver Auto Show. You mentioned that the auto show is still scheduled right now for mid to late March. Are you planning on canceling it, or are you just in a wait-and-see pattern? Well, we are in a wait-and-see pattern, but no, um, to your question, are we planning on canceling it? Absolutely not at this point. We don't have any reason at this point to believe that we would have to cancel it. But um, we will have to obviously operate under the protocols that are in place at the time and um, and see if we'll be able to do it. But uh, we're um, in a network of other auto shows around the country and around the world. And uh, uh, most of the auto shows, or let's say all the auto shows between mid-March of 2020 and now have been canceled and probably into October and November. There are some shows that are scheduled in October through December timeframe that have not yet been canceled and they're planning to go forward. Um, but, you know, I mean, we'll, we'll play it by ear, but we're hoping to run the 2021 auto show as as close to normal operation as possible. Yeah, I hope that it comes down to uh, comes down to that where it is operating as normal as possible. I um, drive a Chevy Volt, and so you were mentioning electric cars. I have that hybrid of the two where it has the uh, gasoline sure. generator in the Volt, and actually I'm sad to see that the Volt has been retired and they're not going to make it anymore, or at least let the technology go away, because it's actually a really well-made car, best car I've ever owned. Uh, and I wish they had made it into an SUV model or a little bit bigger model than just the passenger car. I would have bought one in a in a half a second. No, uh, you and me both. Um, since you mentioned the Volt, when the Volt first came out, I was there when it was unveiled uh, originally at the Detroit show. I was uh, there when it was uh, first in production and at the LA Auto Show, and General Motors actually drove it from Detroit to the LA Auto Show and through Denver, and I hosted them at a, uh, the team that was traveling with it at a restaurant over in Cherry Creek North and actually helped them find a charging station at a hotel on Colorado Boulevard. So they actually came, some to, really... they came to the TV station, and I got a little tour with Mike Nelson in, in the Volt. That was the first time I saw it as well when they were here in town doing a little tour of it, and we took a little uh, a lap around Spear and, and downtown. Yeah, and that um, 
that car, I, I, I'm glad to hear that you were a part of that tour too because I still remember that too like it was yesterday. Um, I helped them get into a, um, um, a schedule at dealers that they were going to um, show it just for an hour or two at the dealerships, mainly show it to the dealers, but um, helped them do that. It was, it was a great experience. I agree with you. It was an outstanding car, um, outstanding technology, and I'm, I was sorry to see it go. Uh, there is a movement to what they call full electrification, so a battery electric vehicle instead of a PHEV or plug-in hybrid electric vehicle. But um, the the advantage of the Volt over the battery electric vehicle, say a Leaf or some of the other pure Tesla. Uh, battery electrics, is yeah, is the range. You know, right. you could get in your yep. Volt if you wanted and drive straight to Las Vegas. You'd have to stop occasionally for gas, and it wouldn't run on pure electric the whole way but you although it always it's it. always running on electric it's because it's generating electricity it's not running the 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 it's not like a prius where it has a battery that assists it get extra good gas mileage it is always on electric it's generating electricity that's what the generator does yeah no good point good point um i, I was just saying that uh you um with that one you wouldn't have to stop at a right. charging station and sit idle for two or three or four hours so um, you could just drive it straight through, and that's what was the beauty of the Volt. Yeah, exactly. I, I love the car. Mine's a 2014, and I'm going to drive it until it stops driving anymore. So it is, it is my favorite car. Tim Jackson, you're the president and the CEO of Colorado Automobile Dealers Association. Thank you so much for spending uh, so much time with us here on the show. Great insights and uh, great information. Appreciate your time here on the podcast. Thank, thanks for the opportunity. Tim, thanks again for being here on the show. Uh, that that great information there, and I, I can't wait for the auto show. I just it is one of my favorite things to do, and even if we have to be masked up, if we have to be socially distant, that's fine. I I I will go and I will enjoy myself, and it will be great. I want to see it anyway. That's uh, that it is always one of my favorite things to do every year is, is head to the auto show. All right, that's it for the show this week. If you want to contact us, the email is drivingyoucrazypodcast at gmail.com. Uh, the phone number is 303-832-0217. If you want to pick up the phone and drop us a line, we'd love to hear from you and hear how you like the show or if you, how you don't like the show, whatever the case may be. And remember that if you can on your podcast app. Make sure that you uh, rate, rinse, and repeat uh, for this show so we can get some more of those going for us, too. Anyway, thanks again for listening, and until next time, I'm Jason Looper, the Traffic Guy. Be safe, and as always, happy motoring.